0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May twenty third, twenty twenty two. I'm John Podbors, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Joe Biden is in Asia and is uh, making a flurry of news in Asia. Um, one. Head scratching thing that he's done, uh, that because of who Biden is and how he makes pronouncements, and how to be honest, many people in America, you know, who watch him and are watching the administration aren't sure what to take seriously from what he says because of the question of whether he is totally compost mentis, is he basically said that we would go to war to protect Taiwan from China. Uh, it has been the it has been the uh, policy of the United States for decades now to pursue a something we, we call strategic ambiguity on this question. Um, Biden blew through that. You could say that maybe that's a good thing because he blew through it because we. Maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't. The Chinese should probably think that we're not going to take it lying down. Uh, Why should we prevaricate? But we do get back to this question about whether or not, when Biden speaks, he is speaking for his administration, or whether they know when he's going to go off half cocked and call Putin a war criminal and say he has to be—you know—he must be deposed from office. We're going to go to war over Taiwan. You go, you know, the the administration then scrambles to say that he hasn't changed the policy when clearly the words that he spoke changed the policy. The policy is changed unless he deliberately goes back and says, I made a mistake. That's not what I meant, or however he might say it. And I think more than at any other time in American history, uh, are we in a position where what the president says we're supposed to kind of wait and make sure that it's actually what they're going to do. And that's bad.
1: And does, the, the, does, does the rest of the world know to wait and see, you know, that's, that's, well, that's the other, the part other bad
2: yeah. part, right? This is the third time he said it, that he would come to America's defense and then the administration cleans up afterwards and says, Oh no, no, Taiwan, no, 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 Taiwan's defense. Taiwan's yeah. defense. And then no, 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 no. We're, our policy is guided by the Taiwan relations act. No, it's not. When the commander-in-chief says that they will take a military action in the event of this or the other contingency, that's what the rest of the world hears. And they should, because he, the power of the presidency is such that he can make such pronouncements. But generally, this should be America's policy. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a fiction to suggest that our policy is guided by the Taiwan Relations Act. It's virtually defunct. Uh, arm sales, congressionally mandated arm sales to Taiwan have upended a settlement called the Third Communique, which has previously guided American policy towards Taiwan. It's a defunct policy. The president is giving voice to something that Americans generally support and that Congress supports and that we've been moving in this direction for some time. So strategic ambiguity hasn't prevailed in a long time. Our relationship with Taiwan is not ambiguous.
3: Well, it's a testament, isn't it, to to the Biden administration's level of chaos and messaging on anything related to foreign policy that I agree with. You You know, I read this and thought, great, he's saying something that I completely agree with. This is good. We should actually be robustly announcing our, our willingness to go to the mats for Taiwan. And then I started having those doubts. I'm like, but did he mean it? is someone going to walk it back? I mean, that's a problem. They have actually created an expectation both in the public and in our allies and, and uh, leaders across the world to not trust anything this guy says. And that's bad. And, and to Abe's point, yeah, I think we're not sure what it means. We, we will well, have to wait and see.
1: He sort of moved us on to strategic ambivalence because, you know, he says in, in sort of one breath, uh, yes, Yet, I mean, it was the answer was a straightforward yes. Yes, the U.S. W- w- would would intervene uh, to defend Taiwan, and says we still have we still have our what w- we still support what one China policy. You know, whereby uh, Taiwan is is considered China. I mean, I think it's important to say that our our policy
0: in China in relation to China and Taiwan should be that we are committed to a path that will prevent China from invading Taiwan. That is, that is our goal. Our goal is for China not to create the conditions for World War III by invading a, a country that at least has to be considered since it has now been separate from the mainland for 73 years as an entirely independent entity now a democracy that is not going to be swallowed up by a totalitarian state that has these designs against it. And what is in the American interest is that China not do it, not what are we going to do if China does it, but that we, will, we, we are going to do whatever we can to raise the cost to China f- or, to, you know, or to do something about the temptation that China might have to take this step. You can then say this may be the single greatest value of our unshakable, what appears to be an unshakable commitment to reversing Putin's efforts in Ukraine, that that was not just about Ukraine, but is about Taiwan. And I don't think if you're Xi or you're the Chinese leadership, you look at, you can say, well, it's Russia and they suck or whatever, but that you look at what's happened with Russia and Ukraine as the latest example of a kind of daring move to suborn and subjugate and subdue and swallow another country and say yeah you know what we should do that <laughs> it's going so well for them we should do that the Taiwanese have been preparing for 70 years for a Chinese invasion every Taiwanese kid knows where he's supposed to go what he's where where you know where the bunkers are it's a highly complicated the topology of Taiwan is very uh, hostile (laughs) to invasion um uh and and uh and the the Taiwanese have have been committed for more than three generations to taking measures to ensure that they can either repel they can either resist or repel the invaders um so I don't think that you know at this moment, if you're China, you're looking at the world and saying, this is really a fertile moment for us to consider doing this. Had Ukraine gone another way in the first week, that would have been the great terror, right? The great terror would have been, this is only the beginning and uh, woe betide Taiwan and woe betide us you know, when we are faced with this unbelievably bad choice. Why are we faced with this choice? I think it's important for people to look at this and say, well, why should we care? Japan's uh, most distant island is 50 miles from Taiwan. So the idea that that a massive effort by China to make a move to dominate the seas through its capture of Taiwan directly revolutionizes Japan. Japan can no longer be this semi pacifist it will have to defend itself it will have to start militarizing uh, very rapidly in order to stave off you know efforts to you know play footsie with its islands and, and not not immediately but over I mean, the Japan is of pretty well century. militarized i think it's one of like the it's one of the top 10 militaries on
2: earth Uh, Well, that's
0: only because it's got the third largest economy
2: on Earth. Certainly, mostly. I mean, it's just it's got a pacifist clause in its constitution, but it is not a demilitarized nation.
0: No, but it has a pacifist clause in its constitution. It's the country's entire culture and the way that it has conceived of itself since the Second World War would have would would have to change and change utterly. And I'm not saying that it would be bad, by the way, for Japan to be a more openly militarized country. I'm not worried that Japan is going to somehow, you know, invade Manchuria and, you know, uh, but- Well, they do have designs on Formosa, right? I mean, the the problem is, is that, uh,
2: you know, Japan's Navy is not capable of doing this. The the Vietnamese Navy is not capable of doing this. The only Navy in the Pacific that's capable of keeping the South China Sea open, through which $3 trillion worth of trade transits every year, is the U.S. Navy. And are we even capable of projecting that kind of power? Our Blue Water Navy? capable of projecting that kind of power? I don't know. And I don't know. What well, you mean in a real war? In a real conflict, yeah, where right. maybe ship missiles are flying, we have carrier groups that are, you right. know, I mean, this is real, the real thing, we're committing ourselves perhaps to a to a, something that we abandoned doctrinally in the Obama administration, which was a two front war
0: doctrine. Right, so anyway, the whole point here is that this is a, this is a,
1: let well, I me, mean, oh, go ahead, Abe. Well, I mean, the other sort of broad reason that we should care is because we don't want to see the, the sort of uh, ballooning power and rise of of China, you know, increase ever more, you know, uh, taking over more and more places, exerting more power, projecting more power to nations abroad. I mean that 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 is a massive, overarching foreign policy threat for us.
2: I mean, people who've been studying the Ukraine war, you know, the big. The big picture here is that we massively overestimated Russia's capacity to project power over its borders. So what else are we misunderestimating underestimating or overestimating? We can't really rely on our intelligence capabilities. And maybe we've created a paper tiger out of China, but maybe we're com- significantly underestimating their capacity to well, project force and, and deny us access to the South China Sea.
0: Taiwan is a nation of 25 million people. It is the fifteenth richest country on the planet Earth. It will not go gentle into that good night. It is a militarized country, as I say. It has spent decades preparing, in civil defense terms, for you know for a disaster. Uh, so they actually have a you know they have an instantaneous plan, um, and this is an important trading partner of the United States. And again, you know, like we have this fiction somehow that it's not really a country. It's really a country. Like I say, seven decades of independence. um, And it went from being one of the poorest places on Earth to one of the wealthiest places on Earth because it adopted proper economic, social, political and moral values uh, in that sense. And, you know, aside from everything else, like we don't want to have China be, you know, we don't want China to believe that it is the future and to do this. This would be a horror beyond belief to have this place swallowed up by, you know, by its hotel where we've seen what happens with uh, Hong Kong reverting to Chinese control, right? So Hong Kong reverted to Chinese control and they promised they had made this guarantee of it having a separate political system. And then after 17 years, they're like, well, we're done with that, fine. Anyone says they want free speech, they're going into jail, See, this protest, we're going to shoot you like that. We know what they do when they take over, when they take over free places, they, 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 they wait, they buy their time and then they put it, they, they squash them with the, with the foot of the totalitarian.
3: This is the, but that's such an important point that I think uh, part of what makes. People suspicious of Biden making these bold statements now is that Biden, the Biden administration has not proven itself to be a long-term strategic thinker on the global stage, despite having run as being the adults in the room returning to power. China plays the long game. I mean, if you want to understand China, read the reports out of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. They're looking ahead to like the 2030s, the 2040s, China's long-term strategic plans, why they're building islands in the middle of nowhere to serve as bases. I mean, they have a long-term strategic plan. Our ambiguity plan is very reactive reactionary. And I think that what was sort of shocking about Biden's statement over the weekend is that it was the first thing that was not reactionary necessarily. I mean, he's answering a question, but he didn't have to answer it the way he chose to. Um, However, that doesn't Inspire confidence that there's any long term Asia strategy that we can trust the administration to do. And in some sense, I mean, not to be politically cynical, but it's very useful for him to be going overseas and making bold statements about other countries and their borders and their sovereignty. He's yet to visit the border we have right now in this country, which is overrun, and a judge has just put a stay on lifting the Title 42 restrictions. There's a lot of trouble he's got at home, and it's pretty typical for a candidate to, to for a president who's in trouble to go overseas and look strong again. So well, I'm let, a little cynical.
0: Well, let's talk about part two of Biden's, you know, Biden's trip to, to Asia, which is the announcement of this 13 nation loose alliance of countries that are going to be in a loose alliance, many of those same countries already in a loose alliance with China. This loose alliance with us is supposed to be our bulwark against China. And it involves nations that have also signed some kind of a loose economic confederation with China. So how that- it's Like the athleisure yeah, foreign policy. Yeah. Sorry.
3: It's all loose and ambiguous. <laughs> right. <Sorry. laughs>
0: um, no, but I, I, so, so on the one hand, this is to be welcome, like, if we remember going back like six years, the Obama administration spent years negotiating this Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which was effectively dead on arrival uh, when it was, you know, became sort of a major issue because the right was against it because the right was getting, a lot of the right was against it because the right was getting increasingly more interested in being combative toward, you know, toward, toward our trade in the East And, of course, the left wing of the Democratic Party went absolutely ballistic, forced Hillary Clinton to oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Like, you know, she had been the secretary of state of the administration that negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She had to come out against it. Bernie Sanders partially ran his campaign against it. Uh, so here we have some kind of revival of some kind of we're looking to the east to make sure that we have good relations with India and Singapore and Vietnam and other, you know, Thailand, other trading partners. But there's nothing to it as far as one can tell. Uh, I mean, according to the New York Times, the framework, refoc- the framework of for this whatever the hell it is. We'll focus on four main goals. One, harmonizing efforts to secure supply chains, which, of course, sounds great right now because we have a supply chain problem. Two, expanding clean energy. Three, fighting corruption. And four, paving the way for greater digital trade. And apparently each country in this 13-nation confederation will get to pick and choose which of these four they want to focus on. They don't have to focus on all four. They could just do one. They could do three or they could do two.
1: And and we're supposed to um, entice them to do these things, to to change their labor regulations and environmental regulations with what? Tariffs right. are not on the table. No, right. There's no reduction in tariffs. And what's more, not only are there a
0: reduction in tariffs, but the major American negotiating partners, it is clear, will be Labor unions and environmentalists—they—they they are the ones who will be at the table more than businesses, for example. So, what do they want? Well, labor unions want higher tariffs, <laughs> and uh, environmentalists want these countries to agree to take measures to harm their own economies for the purpose of—you know—for the purpose of slowing down greenhouse gases and things like that and they're really they're really going to go for that. One thing you know about India and China is they're really 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 excited about 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 holding back their economies uh, because they're concerned about pollution. They are so concerned about pollution that they want to hold back their economies and god knows what the whole digital trade thing is. I don't even know what that is. Does that mean does that mean crypto does it mean doing something that isn't crypto that we could make in place of crypto? It's just Argle bargle. It's just a lot of. It's just a lot of you know gum and glue and I. I you know like. Um. It's a little embarrassing because obviously they went there, with the purpose of making a big announcement about this, and so since that was the goal, they had to weaken whatever it was to such an extent that it was so elastic that they could get these thirty, these uh, twelve other countries to agree. Um. I mean, I think it's a tragedy that we can't do this more, more properly and that our, our own domestic politics have, have, have made us a little meshug on trade questions. I will say this, though. In 2017, 2018, when, when Trump was going very hard at China, I had all these liberal Wall Street people that I know, very left-wing, you know, hate Republicans, hate social, hate conservative social policy, all this would sort of take me aside at a party or something and say, you know, Trump's kind of right on China. Like somebody really, somebody really needed to face down China. And I know I've been working in China for 10 years. I know like these guys, they're stealing our stuff. They're stealing our, they're, they're stealing our property. They're stealing our intellectual pride. They're doing this. They don't, they don't abide by contract. You know they make you hire ghosts they make you hire their own companies and then they steal your stuff and so someone really got to do it but of course they would never say that. they would never say that out loud or every now and. And then somebody would, when Noah and I were on, you know, sometimes we were on the Morning Joe panels on Monday when every now and then somebody, when there was some conversation about the economics of the week, somebody would let slip. Richard Haas would let slip or Steve Ratner would let slip something about how, look, China needed to be confronted. I mean, China, China can't just go on doing the way things the way it's doing them. But of course, you could never give Trump any any credit for that. And I, I, he did. not Well, the trade
2: bar- and, well, trade barriers, I don't think were the right answer to that, in part because they're so politically powerful. They're advantageous politically for this administration and the previous administration to the point now where the policy question should be not if we get rid of these tariffs, but when to relieve the inflationary pressure on this economy. It's been floated in the press a hundred times. I can't tell you how many times I've read that tariff relief is coming right around the corner and they can't do it in part because the politics don't allow them to do it, but it is a stranglehold on our economy. And it is not affecting any sort of policy change that we should want
0: to see out of Beijing. And yet there is absolutely no political stomach to take that argument on. Right. We have two major interesting transnational issues for which a more liberal approach would seem to be the answer to the problems that face us at this moment two one is as you say liberalizing certain aspects of trade and you know dealing lowering trade barriers and the other is liberalizing immigration because we have a labor shortage <laughs> and jobs are going unfilled and we could import workers and we basically there is absolutely the only the only political heat on involves letting illegals in which is not what we're even talking about here so uh you know that we are
2: transition a, a little into the title 42 if you want to talk about that because it's not entirely about just illegal migrants that's a right. asylum seeker issue okay go ahead well, we had a, on friday we had a uh, ruling Big pivot here. Uh, we had a ruling from a Louisiana judge, a federal judge in Louisiana, um, providing injunctive relief for the states that sued the Biden administration ahead of its anticipated, uh, today, anticipated belief uh, the, or, or effort today to lift Title 42, which is this pandem- pandemic era regulation, a public health measure, not an immigration measure uh, that uh, wouldn't allow migrants who crossed into the into the United States to apply for asylum as refugees. Uh, they have to stay in a, in a third party country to do that which is a much more difficult process so that would have been lifted today and then migrants would have been able to apply for asylum and stay in the united states while they uh you know went through that petition that process uh that's not going to happen now it's not going to happen for the foreseeable future uh they got injunctive relief and the uh, the the logic for this rationale because it's kind of confusing how can an executive order not be rescinded by the executive at its will um, the judge said it violated the Administrative Procedures Act because it would put place an undue financial burden and administrative burden on the states. Um, you know, wh- whether that rationale holds, if it gets you know revised later on by a future court, I wouldn't be surprised. But it's not happening now. And it's not happening now because there's no political will to do that sort of thing. So, yes, we have a labor shortage. Uh, or we have asylum seekers, we have crises abroad, we have rising authoritarianism, but there's, there's still sort of a build a moat around this country mentality. Uh, and it's not going away and it's not because of COVID.
0: Oh, it's not going away also because, um, it's gold. This is utter political gold. I mean, you know, I say this with no stomach because I'm as dovish as they come on immigration. Um, but uh, the Democratic Party has, has allowed itself to become the party of uh, scofflawry on matters involving immigration and to side with people who are breaking the law and saying and, and, and a- having absolutely no sympathy for the notion that we're a nation of laws and people can't come in by the millions breaking laws um, once, particularly once there's no national consensus that immigration is a good thing, which there was in this country for a very long time and which really is no longer the case. So if you, if you have an implicit national consensus that says, okay, we're gonna look the other way because this is helpful, that's one thing. If you have no national consensus, and you're saying we're not only not looking the other way, we are embracing a policy uh that says it's okay to violate US law if you come in from abroad. And we're gonna we're and we have an entire superstructure of, of organizations and you know, ideologues who are gonna support you if you break our laws coming into this country. And that and is not only that's
1: politically that. suicidal. As is the, the extension of that, which is their organized efforts to demonize um, those who try to enforce immigration law. I mean, this is this is a sort of another defund the the, the police kind of campaign. Right.
0: The defund the police, the board before defund the police, defund ICE, abolish, ICE. abolish ICE abolish was, a, ICE was yeah. the run up to defund right. the police. That was
1: we were supposed to abolish
0: the agency. That patrolled our
1: borders. You have the president accusing without evidence, you know, the the Border Patrol agent of whipping migrants. You have
3: mayors and and, uh, in deep blue cities declaring it an ice free zone and basically saying you can't arrest uh, illegal immigrants and and our city will protect them. And, you know, all kinds of weird, obviously, extra legal schemes to undermine the rule of law.
0: Anyway, it's bad. (laughs) It's that simple. I mean, it's bad for them and it's good for Republicans, and it's good for Republicans, as we know, in places that we would not have anticipated seven or eight years ago, it's good for Republicans, like in those Texas border counties, like like with, and I guess this does make sense, though people never really understood it. Uh, immigrants from Spanish-speaking countries who are here legally, who came in legally, who have gone through the process legally, and have no interest in apparently and quite or are quite hostile to the people who come in illegally and it's turning them into Republicans where they were once Democrats. And because we haven't been able to have an honest conversation about any of this, you know, in sort of elite circles for 10 to 15 years, nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw those, now those border counties in Texas that flipped to Trump by these huge margins they're very small counties like you know we're talking about 8000 voters or something like you know, they're they're almost unpopulated so they're suggestive but they're not you know they're not determinative but you know you can't look at these polls over and over and over again showing significant movement by americans from spanish speaking countries or you know american voters whose origins are in spanish speaking countries And not say there is something major going on here. And what is the major issue been floated over the last 10 years toward them specifically was immigration dovishness. And another issue, though, that I fell for it. I fell for it. I remember on this podcast in 2016 saying, oh, my God, like those numbers for Trump, you know, Romney got 29%. I mean, Trump will be lucky to get 15%. And Trump got exactly the same amount of Hispanic vote that That was after saying that that Mexican, that judge of Mexican origin couldn't hear his case because he was obviously going to be biased against him and stuff like that. But this
3: is another area in which the sort of anti-racism, you know, absolute uh, focus on woke race narratives have have really hurt Democrats because someone like Joe Biden could pre- woke era talk in a convincing way to just those voters you described john he could say look we want we want sensible immigration policy immigrants are, are the backbone of this country you know he could do all the sort of signaling that politicians do but now his own coalition would call him a racist for doing that right everybody is assumed to be identified first and foremost by their by their race and so if you're if you're a latino or you're a hispanic american who thinks people should only come to this country legally like you and your family did and work hard and you know uh, pursue their American dream it's offensive to be said well now that you are a X person we know that you agree that I should be abolished that's just offensive it's condescending and offensive but that is the the sort of left's overarching message about race is that you must all think alike and you must think like us
0: okay I think there's an even bigger uh semantic thing to bring up in this regard I don't know if people listening last Tuesday when the Pennsylvania results were coming in and people were talking about what happened in Pennsylvania particularly in relation to John Futterman, the, the Democratic Senate Senate candidate who is a fascinating character because he's six foot nine he wears shorts and everything like that except he's from a rich family and he went to Harvard so it's some kind of bizarre
1: it's affectation
0: <laughs> it's a it's some some kind of affectation I mean it's not that rich people can't wear shorts or be tall I'm just saying <laughs> he, he you know, He isn't, you know, he isn't from a steel, he's not from like a steel family, you know, his his dad didn't come out of the coal mines and then he's now candidate. Okay, but Um, if he's pretending to be, you know, this populist figure,
2: he's doing a bang up job. Every single Republican who pretends to be this person should be
0: doing the Fetterman. It's like Sandy Cortez becoming Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez. He is really good. He is a really (laughs) good, colorful, fun, it reminds you that people—it's not just Trump—in the you know sort of in the most like discomforting or weird sense. People like a candidate who's like, "Hey, I like that guy. He's funny. Look at that." You know, like politics—that's a very big thing—and all everyone is constantly being told to wash themselves into a kind of you know totally bland oatmeal gray nothing. To be, you know, appealing to the greatest number of people, and that that doesn't work. But here's why I bring it up, because uh, Fetterman wins this gigantic, mark, right by this gigantic margin. There he is. He's the candidate, and on, I don't know which CN they, uh, you know, uh, I think it was C N N actually, because I think Jonah was sitting next to the person who did this said. Ferdinand has a lot of work to do to appeal to people of color why because he has there is this story about him going after a a, uh a you know black guy he had a gun he thought something was going on the black guy didn't do anything um but I was struck by the use of the term people of color in this case because this has now become the term of choice you say communities of color people of color This is actually a way of erasing ethnic and racial differences among minorities who are believed to be aligned with the Democratic Party. It is to say that a Latino voter has the same interests as a Black voter, has the same interests as a South Asian voter, has the same interests as a Filipino voter, or something like that. And of course, that's not true. First of all, we shouldn't assume that all groups have common interests, but it's a way, I think, for black activists to increase their number. Because you're not just saying he needs this because he has a problem in black communities. You're calling them communities of color because the community of color is like 28% of Americans as opposed to 12 or 13%. And that's way more frightening or, you know, way more, boy, you got to do something to appeal to them. And the, the more we learn, the more we realize there are real distinctions between them. And it is in the interest of Democratic activists, to do what, or leftist activists, to do whatever they can to erase the differences between these groups so that they can claim that they form a one gigantic coalition, Democratic coalition, whose enthusiasm must constantly be courted, less Democrats face disaster. That's what the point
2: of the phrase um, "BIPOC" is, right? Black Indigenous People of Color. It's this initialism um, that subsumes every minority in the United States into it. Um, it's used primarily to uh, as a synonym for, or a stand in for, uniquely disadvantaged, uniquely threatened, uniquely uh, imperiled uh, demography. But that's all it expresses. It doesn't. It flattens all those distinctions that you just talked about. Christine, I think you th- you flagged this one that was hilarious. Um, Elon Musk's former girlfriend, mother of two children. Uh, her name is Grimes, at least that's what she goes by. And, She's um, a singer. She's a Grimes, singer. the singer. Whatever. I don't have any pop culture knowledge. She exists as a human being and has weird fashion taste. Um, but she also went on uh, social media to say that she was raising funds for uh, Ukrainian, black, indigenous people of color. <laughs> of whom there may be three i don't know what the indigenous ukrainians are you call them ukrainians that's who the indigenous
0: ukrainians are Are we're talking about tartars (laughs) who are you talking about um you know what we're going to talk about right now trees we're going to talk about trees because it is time for us to have a conversation about our good friends at fastgrowingtrees.com which i it's We're in the middle of spring. Summer's coming. These are the seasons for finally getting outdoors for entertaining pool parties and barbecues. But if your yard looks like a plant cemetery, you're not going to enjoy it as much. Get your place looking like a resort easy with fast growing trees. When it comes to caring for your plants, know how matters. That's why fastgrowingtrees.com, its experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate, location, and needs. There's no waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants over town. You order online or over the phone and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, they're growing and care advice available 24-7. Whether you're looking for increased privacy shade or adding some natural beauty to your yard, fast-growing trees have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. One million home gardeners have already seen what fastgrowingtrees.com can do for them. And that includes our own Noah Rothman, a fastgrowingtrees.com customer.
2: I bought trees, I put them in the ground, they're growing. They're growing fast. fast. <laughs> yeah, giant so, thujas, and thujas grow very fast. And they are actually are, you can actually see them growing in real time. They've only been in ground in ground a month. It's very disappointed in the first 48 hours they hadn't grown at all. But over a month, you can see some growth. So
0: but let's say that Noah hadn't liked what was going on beyond those 48 hours. You got a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee. So you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. We could have activated that, but there they are. They're growing, they're in his yard. It's fantastic. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Uh, So we have another primary day coming up tomorrow. The big state in the primary is Georgia. Uh, And of course, all all the excitement and interest is on the uh, Republican side, a uh, question of whether Governor Kemp, uh, who is slaughtering uh, challenger, former Senator David Perdue in the polls, can meet his polls and be over 50 percent and avoid a runoff, which he would presumably run anyway, win anyway, but nonetheless. And then we have a race in the Attorney General's race, Brad Raffensberger, who certified the election and became an enemy of Trump's has a race on his hands, Uh, but we sort of know, we know what's going on on the Democratic side, right? We got, we've got, uh, we got uh, Senate races that are uh, uh, the, anyway, it's the governor's race that matters on the Democratic side. We know Stacey Abrams is going to be the candidate for governor. She was the one who ran in 2018, got within 50,000 votes and then announced, uh, because it's okay to say this if you're a Democrat, apparently that she actually won the election. And uh, that would be great uh, if uh, you know if, when you're a Democrat, but you're not allowed to say that you won won the election when you lost it. If you're Trump, uh, so she said something yesterday. Look at Stacey Abrams. You say she's a very interesting person. She's written romance novels. She's she's kind of personable and likable. She said something yesterday that was so jaw droppingly bizarre about her own state that I am, I want somebody to explain to me what, what, is, what is going on. Here's what she said. I'm running for governor because I know that we have to have a conversation about who we are in the state and what we want for each other and from each other. She said during a speech at the Gwinnett Democrats Blue Topia Gala, okay? I'm tired of hearing about how we're the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. I'm sorry, a pop-up came up there. I'm going to read it again. I am tired of hearing about how we're the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. Let me contextualize. When you're number 48 for mental health, when we're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you are not the number one place to live she said it was the worst place to live
1: worst place does that remind live. you of who trump yep running down america sure as he campaigned there's a unfortunate appeal in you know people who are willing to 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 beat up on the country along with you
0: okay that's a and very not, imp- and by the way she's is, wrong
1: yeah. <laughs> Georgia
2: is not the worst state in the country for infant mortality.
0: She said it was forty.
2: Louisiana is. Uh, She said it was number one. You just read the quote. Number one for maternal maternal mortality. I'm sorry, not infant mortality, maternal mortality. Uh, And that's actually Louisiana, not Georgia. So not only is she running down her state, she's running down her state incorrectly to make a rhetorical point, which is that this place sucks. Elect me. Very strange.
0: Okay. So... Abe is saying it's not strange, right? Abe is saying it once was strange. <laughs> I think people, generally speaking, I mean, it, classic American history is that people were more patriotic toward their the state that they were from than to the country at large. That's That's, I mean, we're talking now, you know, be- from before, you know, the Great Depression, which is when the country kind of nationalized itself, let's say. But, um, you know, people were sort of Virginians before they were Americans or they were Mass. You know, they were from Massachusetts more than they were Americans. That's a, that's sort of in the American DNA. But I think people tend to love the state that they're from and hate and say that the problems all come from other
1: states. But well, let's just do a thought experiment. New York City is a people uh, is is a place that whose inhabitants are deeply attached to it. It's part of their identity. At this point, let's let's imagine a a mayoral candidate. Let's pretend that mayor's race was now, who came out and said, "New York is a mess. This is a disaster." People might not be grateful. This is the worst place to
3: live. Okay, can I just add though? We're missing the bigger point here. Okay. Stacey Abrams is a terrible candidate. Everybody forgets this because they've they've drunk the Kool-Aid since 2018. They bought her lie about having been cheated out of the election. They put her on the cover of magazines. They put her in a damn cape, you know, looking like a superhero, talking about how amazing she is. And she rode that way for a while. She raised a ton of money with these organizations she created, claiming voter fraud was rampant and widespread, which, as we've seen recently in Georgia, is completely oh, we, gotta go into,
0: we, we You know yeah. what, we got to go into that after you finish so this,
3: okay. my the, I'll end my rant in a second just by saying she's been she's never been elected to a statewide office she was a house a state house representative in georgia she might just not have the political acumen to win statewide office she has celebrity and i agree with john she's a really interesting person and she's written all these books and she's she's an unusually quirky candidate but it might not scan with voters of Georgia. She might just be too, in a weird way, kind of seem like an outsider now. She's a multimillionaire now. She's a national figure now. She, she has embraced that role. She hasn't just in a, in a more savvy way used it in order to build her cred back in the state of Georgia. So she might've overplayed her hand with the celebrity bit.
0: Look, Georgia is the, the most interesting test case state in the nation now, right? Because it has all of these bizarre cross patterns. It went for Biden, despite what, despite what uh, you know, Trump says. Um, it, uh, uh, Trump's temper tantrum then allowed it to have, now has two Democratic senators, which was not supposed to have. Of course, there is this crazy Senate race coming up between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is a crazy person, but was a great, <laughs> a great uh, college football player uh, you know at at the University of Georgia so even though he supposedly has multiple personalities and things like that he apparently has a real shot at winning winning the Senate race in, in Georgia but um so you have this very interesting you have a you have a Republican governor who appears to be very strong um and this you know sort of major star figure cultural figure in Stacey Abrams so Anything could go any which way absent national you know, absence sort of the wave, which is obviously heading in the Republican direction. And that may be all that's necessary to prevent a further erosion of the Republican political domination of Georgia. And, and uh, you know, uh, which which might have been what you might have expected, given the trends over the last uh, couple of years. But the most fascinating thing is that Georgia became this, like, object lesson in horror, right, because of the evils of its behavior toward voting, right? That was the big thing. Like, it's the terrible, evil efforts at voters, new laws to restrict voting and, you know, make people die of thirst like they're in Lawrence of Arabia while they stand on line because no one sh- was allowed to give them water if you know that you were well that wasn't the first I think
2: before that it was an experiment in human sacrifice right by reopening because oh, of COVID, or in, COVID yeah. in the summer of 2020
0: but it was also I don't know if you know this but if you go if you wait on a line uh, to vote uh, you really literally you could you could die of thirst uh, unless people are walking up and down the line giving you water, you know, like pouring, like, you know, like pouring water with from a ladle into your mouth as you you know, with as your parched lips crack open from dehydration, I never heard so much deep emotion being expressed over the fact that, you know what, you can step out of line for five minutes, walk over to the 7-Eleven and buy a stupid bottle of water if you're thirsty, if the line's so long and you could buy six bottles of water for your friends, you don't need someone walking up and down the line giving you water. Anyway, so there is Georgia and the news that has come out in the last week. And then you have like reporters in the Washington Post that are getting, despite the horrible voting law that was attempting to make it impossible for people to vote, turnout has surged in early voting in Georgia surged there hasn't been early voting like this ever in georgia and we'll see what happens tomorrow on election day so basically every single thing you heard people say about voting in georgia was bullshit
2: oh that's not fair it's the indomitable will of georgians who are enduring these intolerable circumstances and still crawling over broken glass to get to the polls despite these obstacles it is a object lesson in pure courage.
3: There's a great quote in a Washington Post or I think from yesterday or today from an actual uh, black Georgia voter who was like, wow. So I'd heard that they were basically going to be- be standing there with clan hoods on, preventing us from voting. But I waltzed right in. It was great. What's the problem? That might seem like it's not a big deal. But if you are constantly telling people fear mongering about how they're going to have a right denied to them, and then they clearly can see with their own eyes that this isn't the truth, they start to mistrust your message on a number of things, not just the one that they were clearly lying to you about.
0: Um, remember that the All Star game the baseball all-star game was pulled from Georgia because of its voting law
2: only to return later that year because the Braves made it into the series.
0: The all-star game was forced to move out of Georgia because of the restrictive voting law that has now seen a surge in voting. Where is the apology? To the politicians in Georgia who voted for the restrictive voting law that has led to a surge in early voting.
2: Or a serious political culture that realizes how profoundly they've cheapened the experience of anybody who lived through Jim Crow. Wow, what Uh, a reckless. That that. that
0: term. Oh, yeah. Jim Crow 2.0, right? That was what Biden called it. He said the the Georgia voting law was Jim Crow 2.0. I mean, the hell with these people, seriously. (laughs) Like, it's just enough. It's just enough. It's like, stop. You, You know, we had years of this talk about Trump gaslighting America and Trump did a lot of gaslighting. But enough. The only thing that spares them from being accused of being gaslighters is that so many of them don't know what they're talking about and are incredibly stupid and will believe any fool thing that is poured into their mouth, into their ears by Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah. Whom they take to be, you know, Godlike transmitters of 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 divine truth. There was no restriction to voting in Georgia. There was no reason for the all-Star game. They're calling a Jim Crow two point. It's just horrifying. And it it's the worst state in the country to live, according to Stacey, you know why? Because she didn't get to be governor. If she were governor right now, and every single social stat that she quoted were the stat about Georgia, she would say, Georgia is the best state in the country to live. Vote for me (laughs) for re-election, she would say, I think. Um, Do we have anything else to bring up? Because We should probably just
2: reference this because it might be coming up eventually, but there are very few competitive primaries. Uh, In Georgia on Tuesday, and this isn't one of them. Um, But in Georgia's 14th, Marjorie Taylor Greene is facing a very significant primary challenge. It will be interesting to see whether the parties can muster the kind of institutional support that they leverage to get Madison Cawthorn out of Congress. I don't think they can or will, uh, in part because Marjorie Taylor Greene is the best fundraiser for the Republican Party. She makes all the money. They can't throw enough money at this lunatic. So the the likelihood of a of a desirable outcome from the perspective of anybody sane is low um but it is in the offing some sort of a challenge here and do you even well, know what her her primary opponent no but you didn't know who madison Cawthorn's primary partner was either
0: but madison Cawthorn, uh uh well so madison Cawthorn was already clearly had lost he lost in his district But he also lost to Sheen in his district. He ended up getting thirty-one percent of the vote. Like you know, if he had, so you know, he was already on the on the downward downward slope. It sort of didn't. It was enough that somebody got thirty-three percent to. But I mean, seventy percent of the of the district voted against him. So that's 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 where we have to see what happens with Marjorie Taylor Greene. But you know, I was I was getting all cheerful there, and now you brought me way down, Noah. So I I she is beloved. I not just her voters but celebrate your grassroots. i celebrate your domination of the crushing morosity standard for which we are still you know we still have crushing morosity t-shirts and sweatshirts you can go on on our merch but go to commentary.org slash merch you can order a crushing morosity t-shirt and wear it on you can't get it in time but you could wear it over the summer just to point out that you know marjorie taylor green is likely to be Re elected to Congress. So that's all we have for today. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.